0: this morning we are continuing in our series christmas according to isaiah today we're looking at part two would you bow with me as we ask the lord to bless his word dear lord we thank you for this opportunity to sit again under your word we know that every time your word goes forth it goes with your blessing it will go forth and accomplish the purpose for which it was sent And we pray that that would be accomplished again this morning. So, by your Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts? Would you help us to clear our minds and set aside distractions so that we can focus on what you have for us this morning? Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a dark and cold night in 1864 as the American Civil War dragged on Nearing its fourth year. Fighting and bloodshed between brothers in the North and brothers in the South was ongoing as a nation was being ripped in two. At Petersburg, Virginia, the Confederate Army Division, led by General George Pickett, was trying to hold that city against the attacks of the Union Army Divisions of General Ulysses S. Grant. Late One evening, General Pickett received word that his wife, who had recently given birth to their firstborn child, a son, while she had just arrived at the encampment. And so, the thoroughly excited General Pickett, who had not yet met his baby boy, he rushed from the front lines back to the rear, eager to meet his son for the first time. And so, as word of the little general's arrival spread through the ranks, for that is what Pickett's men had already nicknamed the baby boy the little general. The confederate soldiers also got excited that their leader who they had great affection for had arrived and so they wanted to celebrate the occasion and so they began building huge bonfires in honor of the general's baby boy. However, as they built these massive bonfires, the Union soldiers on the other side of the line, seeing the bonfires lighting up the night sky, became nervous that it may signal an impending attack. And so they sent out a recon patrol to see what the the bonfires were all about. And investigating, they soon learned what was happening. And they returned with the message to General Grant that General Pickett's newborn baby boy had arrived at the line's. He was meeting him for the first time, and these were celebratory fires being lit in his honour. Well, it so happened that though Grant and Pickett were adversaries in this war, they had in fact been classmates at West Point Military Academy much earlier in their lives when they had both studied to become officers. In fact, they knew each other quite well from that time. And so, remembering his fond memories of Pickett, General Grant ordered that his Union troops would also build bonfires to honor the baby boy's arrival. And so Grant also sent a note through the lines that read, to George Pickett, we are sending congratulations to you, to the young mother and the young recruit. And so for that one night in a long war that pitted brother against brother, the strangest sight was seen, as running for miles along both sides of the front lines Dozens of great bonfires lit up the darkness, and for one night peace and goodwill prevailed. No shots were fired, no blood was shed, as both friend and foe alike celebrated the arrival of the general's son. Now, in a very similar way, it was on another dark night that not bonfires but angels lit up the night sky in honor of the arrival of the king's son here on earth. And with their triumphant song, they declared, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And so today, as we continue in our series looking at Christmas according to Isaiah, we turn now to a familiar passage in Isaiah chapter nine. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there this morning as we will look at it a little bit more closely. And as we do, I'd just like to highlight for you the most familiar lines in this passage, where Isaiah tells of the coming Messiah over 700 years before his birth, saying, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Now, as we hear these amazing verses, and we think of the angel's proclamation of peace on earth and goodwill to men, and then of Isaiah's prophecy naming the coming Messiah as the Prince of Peace, and further declaring that of the increase of this peace on earth, there will be no end. It will just continue on and on and on. And we love the sound of this, don't we? Peace on earth that will have no end. It will endure forever. And hearing this, we could rightly think that all wars and all murders and all fighting and all discord of every type and stripe should then be over, finished. And yet, as we look around our world, as we look around our nation, as we look around even our own community, the opposite seems to be true. Wars, murders, fighting, discord, disunity, brokenness, broken relationships. They're all around us. And many of us have experienced them or are experiencing some of those things even right now. And so we have to ask the question, in light of these words in Scripture, why is that? Why is there so little peace when it has already been declared as having come? Was Isaiah wrong? Were the angels somehow mistaken, or are we missing something in our understanding of these passages? Well, this morning there's three things that I would like to point out to you to help us better understand what is being said here in Scripture. The first of those three things is this. The purpose of the Messiah's first coming was to make spiritual peace between sinful mankind and holy God spiritual peace between sinful mankind and holy god that was the first aim of the messiah's coming because consider this question what eternal good would it be if god ended all human wars and all fighting and all discord of every type and stripe on earth and yet we still die in our sins and we still have to face the wrath of God in an eternity separated from him. What good would it be? Well, you could say it'd be of temporary good, right? There would be no wars or killing, and I guess on that level it would be good, but of what eternal good would it be if we still die after 90 peaceful years and go to an eternity separated from God? You see, God knows that enacting physical peace on earth before first enacting spiritual peace between us and him, enacting spiritual peace within our hearts, to do that in a physical sense before the spiritual, would be folly. Even if the United Nations somehow can miraculously end all wars, would that change our spiritual condition? No, it would not. You see, the heart is where peace must begin, and that can only happen when you and I are at peace with God our creator. Jesus the Messiah is the father's peace offering to us. We cannot broker peace between ourselves and him. It must be initiated by him. He has to initiate the peace. He has to broker the terms and he did so by sending Jesus his son. He is the peace offering of the father to us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 12 to 14 explains what Jesus accomplished for us. Listen, we had no hope and without God in the world. That is our condition. That's where we start out, no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That middle wall of separation speaks to sin being the wall of separation between us and God. And that is the thing that keeps us without hope and without God. We could not break down the wall. We could not climb over the wall. But Christ, by shedding his blood, broke down that wall. And he bought peace between us and the Father. And that's why this verse says, Jesus himself is our peace. His shed blood paid for our sins. And that was the cost he willingly paid. So now when by faith we receive the Son, we have peace with the Father. We are saved, redeemed, adopted, and secured as God's children who will populate his eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness and truth and justice. We will populate that kingdom. And so God's declaration of peace begins first on the inside, a spiritual peace, but it does not end there. Number two, the second thing we must understand from this passage. This prophecy, we must remember, is focused primarily on the nation of Israel. Remember, Isaiah is a Jewish prophet speaking to the Jewish people in their context, so we must look at it through that lens. We tend to take Uh, the prophecies concerning Israel written by Jews for Jews and put them in a uh, sort of Gentile or church-age lens, there is an application there, but we first must understand the message to Israel and the Jewish nation. Now, in that context, we must remember from last week's sermon that this prophecy was written during the period of the divided kingdoms with Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And I had an excellent question posed to me in Graham Enz's sermon notes. And so I answered it for him in his book, but I'm going to answer it for you as well. He asked the question, why did Israel split in two? Very good question. One I didn't answer last week. And part of the reason is it's not a very exciting answer, actually. It's kind of a really boring kind of political answer. But the answer is this. Around 930 BC, when Solomon's son Ra uh, Rehoboam. So King Rehoboam became king of Israel, Solomon's son. Now Solomon was a wise man, of course, the wisest who ever lived, and yet his son apparently wasn't a chip off the old block because he did a terrible job as king. Uh, he, he began just making very poor decisions. He listened to terrible advisors. And one of the things he did was he began hiking taxes like crazy. He was spending and he was taxing. Sounded all familiar? Well, (laughs) anyways, (laughs) what happens next, we hope uh, doesn't sound familiar, because the ten northern tribes of Israel, so the ten tribes in the north, they don't like how King Rehoboam is ruling them, and one thing they hate is how high the taxes are. And so there's a series of events, I won't bore you with the details, but finally they demand some changes, and one of the, the top on the list is that the taxes be lowered because the burden was too great on them. And so finally, the king refuses their demands, and so they say, well, we're done with you. And they secede, and they make their own kingdom in the north. Well, it's only the two tribes in the south, the small, tiny tribe of Benjamin and the large tribe of of Judah, who remain loyal to the king. And so they become known as the kingdom of Judah. So basically, what it boils down to is, poor leadership and high taxes led to the nation splitting in two so if this sounds at all familiar to canadian politics today well i'll just chalk that up to there is nothing new under the sun right so now isaiah a jewish prophet is giving a prophecy that is primarily focused on israel and verse one begins talking about zebulun and naphtali these are two of the least known and weakest tribes of israel And verse 3 says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And then the middle of verse 7 says that he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. So we must remember, all of these things are directly referring to the physical nation of Israel. David's throne. David's kingdom. So in order for this prophecy to be completely fulfilled, all of these things must happen in and to Israel. Israel now as we look at this prophecy you'll quickly notice that some of these things have not yet come to pass and so it begs the question when will these things happen well that's the question that everyone is debating my only answer is soon and I say soon not necessarily in a human uh, you know lifespan sense but in the context of world history certainly these things will happen soon And I say that with confidence because the specific prophecy of Israel coming into existence once more as a nation has already happened. They physically exist, 1948 and on. No one thought it would happen, and yet it did. They exist. And so this has set into motion. We can know that at some point these further prophecies are going to be fulfilled. However, the specific prophecy in this passage is that Israel as a nation will receive their Messiah with joy and will usher in this golden era of peace and righteousness. As we look around the world and as we look at modern-day Israel, this has not yet happened. They have not yet acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. And so what events will precipitate that happening? Well, he gives us some clues. Let's look at verses 3 to 5 specifically. Now the picture being painted here is of Israel rejoicing before the Lord following a tremendous battle where he has delivered them from the rod and the yoke of their oppressors, the nations who are trying to put them down. He's broken the yoke off of them and and it's this rejoicing in, in the plunder and in the peace that follows this great battle. And so what great battle could this be? Well, we can be quite sure that this is a battle that has not taken place yet, but specific clues are given. Verse 4 says, as in the days of Midian's defeat. Now, what's that referring to? Well, it's talking about the time that Gideon, you'll remember, Gideon, (coughs) and he's got an army and he has to whittle it all the way down to 300 men. And so Gideon and 300 men have to take on the entire Midianite army, which is Tens, if not hundreds of thousands strong. They are vastly outnumbered. And so, this is the first clue that, as in the days of Midian's defeat, so here Israel in this great battle yet to come will be vastly outnumbered. The numbers will be so tilted against them that no one will believe that they could possibly win. That's the first clue we're given. Second, as with Midian, Ezekiel 38, <coughs> pardon me, I'm, I'm jumping ahead there, the second clue is that one of the key elements of this victory is that in the confusion, you'll remember, the Midianites began fighting amongst themselves and began killing each other. So the 300 soldiers of Gideon didn't have to kill all the Midianites. They actually began fighting each other in the confusion. And the third clue we're given is that in verse 5, all of the military equipment that's left over from this battle, it says the boots of the soldiers and all of their, their uniforms soaked in blood, all of it, will be destined as fuel for the fire. And so we can infer from this that all of the military equipment left over, the spoils, there will be so much of it, it will be so plentiful, they'll actually use it as fuel for fires, for heating. And so now I'd like to draw your attention to another prophecy that closely mirrors this, Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's an in-depth and lengthy prophecy, but I will give you the, the notes as it relates to the one in Isaiah. In this, it talks about a coming battle where Israel will be attacked by a vast army from the north, referred to in the prophecy as Gog and Magog. So now we compare it to what Isaiah wrote. And first, as with Midian, they will be vastly outnumbered. No one will think Israel stands a chance. They're going to be annihilated by how big this army is coming against them. Second, as with Midian, Ezekiel 38.21 says that As God intervenes and he's throwing hailstorms and fire and there's earthquakes, in all of this mayhem of battle as this vast army is being destroyed by God, it says every man's sword will be against his brother. And so here we see in this coming battle, the army is going to begin fighting against itself. And so clearly in the confusion, this is going to take place just as it did with Gideon and the Midianites. Thirdly, just as Isaiah described military equipment being used as fuel for the fire, Ezekiel 39 verse 10 goes into great detail saying that in the aftermath of this coming battle, verse 10, they will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. So all of these specific details are just matching up perfectly. Perfectly. And as compelling as all of that is, the final and fourth clue that we are given here is the most important. And Ezekiel 39 verse 22 says, in the aftermath of this great battle where Gog and Magog, this, this great army from the north, God intervenes and destroys them. They're obliterated. That in the aftermath of this, verse 22 says, from that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And later it says, I will pour my spirit into them. There are other verses that talk about in the aftermath that they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. And then we see this great turning to their Messiah. And so it becomes increasingly clear that following this coming battle, Israel as an entire nation will recognize God's divine, miraculous deliverance and through those events will come to believe in Jesus as their messiah. And so though Jesus physical birth to them will have already happened, you know, well over 2000 years in the past. On that day as they rejoice in their great deliverance in the spiritual realm, it will be as though It has just happened. And Isaiah's words, they will read them and they will ring out fresh and new across Israel and indeed around the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What a day that will be when Israel finally acknowledges their Messiah. And this brings us now to the third thing that we must understand about Isaiah's prophecy The complete and final fulfillment of peace on earth, though it is not here yet, it is coming. It is coming in the fullest sense of the word. Now everyone knows the classic Christmas carol, Joy to the World. In fact, I didn't even ask Henry to to pick it this morning. I was hoping someone would, and of course he did. It was perfect. We just sang it. We always sing it at Christmas time because, of course, Joy to the World is a Christmas carol, right? But let me ask you is Joy to the World actually a song about Christmas? Henry already knows the answer. He's shaking his head. No, it's not actually a, a song about Christmas because, according to its author, who should know what the song is about, his name is Isaac Watts. You'll see it in the the bottom of the, the page in your hymn book. Isaac Watts wrote the words to joy to the world. And he, in fact, based the lyrics off of Psalm 98, verses 4 to 9. Where verse 9 declares, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, I want to make something very clear here. This cannot be speaking about Jesus' first coming because he himself said that he came not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. It is only in Jesus' second coming that he will return as the judge to judge the earth. And so it was in this sense, thinking about his final return as Lord, King, and Judge, that Watts originally wrote Joy to the world. I want you to just consider the opening lines of verse 1, and you'll see it. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Well, in a spiritual sense, yes, there were a few who did when he came the first time. But the earth as a whole, the world has not yet received Jesus as king. He is not yet sitting on the throne of this world. Later on in the song, you'll, you'll also recognize the line. <clears throat> Excuse me. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, let earth receive her king. And then later, he rules the world with truth and grace. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. So here we see again, he is not yet ruling the world with truth and grace in a literal and physical sense. The complete and physical fulfillment of this is still coming. Now, as to where or why Joy to the World became known as a Christmas carol or sung at Christmas time, that's subject to some debate. No one knows exactly why that happened. But what is not up for debate is that Isaac Watts intended this song to be sung about Jesus' second coming. And so, in that sense, it's fitting that we sing it at Christmas time. But as we think about that, doesn't that just kind of change your whole perspective towards the song? Like, I think next time you'll sing it, you're going to think, oh, wait a second, this is talking about his second coming not his first. It changes our perspective, even though the words remain the same. Well, in the exact same sense, when we read Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, we most often think of it in in reference to Jesus' first coming, and we read it only at Christmas time. But in fact, this prophecy is foretelling much more about Jesus' second coming than his first, as we've just seen. And let me just highlight one more thing for you. Verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, this is evidently referring to Jesus' first coming, the child is born. But I want you to listen as verse 6 continues. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, has the son been given? Yes. But is the government on his shoulders? Has he established his eternal government of, of righteousness and peace yet has this happened well no they have not done this yet he has not done this yet nor has israel received him as their king so i want you to just look in in your bible at verse six at the line to us a son is given and most of your translations will probably have a comma after that phrase or something like it to us a son is given and that little comma represents the entire church age of 2,000 years. One comma, over 2,000 years of history. So it begs the question, how is this possible? Well, first, time and the passage of time has no impact or effect on God whatsoever. So for God, a comma may as well be the entire age of the earth. It means nothing to him. Psalm 90 verse 4 says it well, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. A commentator from about a century ago now by the name of F.C. Jennings. I love how he explains how time means nothing to God. It's very arbitrary. He explains it like this. It is one of the basic principles of prophetic interpretation. That since the heavenlies are not subject to those revolutions of the earth by which time is measured. Being as it were far above them. So it is only when God is dealing with his earthly people that time is reckoned at all. When they are out of communion with him, when he is not so dealing, then we may say his clock stops. There is no measurement of time. I love that line. The heavenlies are not subject to those revolutions of the earth by which time is measured. Our earth is spinning and we're measuring time by it. Heaven is not heaven could care less about how many times the earth is revolving. It it has no bearing on heaven. And so these 365-day increments that we call a year, and a year by which those increments we measure our lives, the only reason that God thinks of them or considers them at all is as they pertain to us and our lives here on earth. Heaven does not have a row of clocks that we often see with, you know, New York time, London time, Tokyo time, L.A. time. Heaven doesn't have a row of clocks like that. And so, should it really be any surprise to us, then, that God chose not to reveal to the prophets that 2,000 years of church history, the church age, would come between Jesus' first coming and his second? Because, you see, God chose to show them glimpses of the big events— Just not how long they would take to happen. I find it's helpful to think of these as mountain peaks of prophecy. And I have a slide here to help us just kind of visualize that. Here we see that that the prophets, at a certain vantage point, are given glimpses of these high points. Think of them as mountain peaks. And as they're looking ahead into the future, as God shows it to them, they have, you know, their present age being their context. And that's where they're going to be living and looking primarily But then they're given a glimpse of the mountain peak of Christ's first coming. Then they're given another glimpse of the future. But they don't know how much time is in those valleys in between. And so you see in that center pyramid, here we see a glimpse of the first coming of Christ. And then in the same prophecy is a big glimpse of his second coming. And yet, in the middle is a comma. And that comma is the valley of 2,000 years. Isn't that incredible that we have here this glimpse and yet it's not a timeline or a chart that we can set our watches by. Isaiah saw these mountain peaks in sequence, but not how long they would take in between. It's a big part of the reason why Jesus' very own disciples were so confused about Jesus' purpose and the timeline by which he would accomplish things. We even see this confusion on full display in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 where following Jesus' resurrection just prior to his ascension into heaven, they ask him there, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they're thinking in the timeline here, Israel's restoration has to be now. They were thinking that 2,000 years ago. And you see, like Isaiah and the other prophets, they saw the Messiah's coming and the subsequent promises of Israel's kingdom being restored as just one event. And who can blame them? I mean, who could have parsed that a comma would be 2,000 years? But yet God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, desired to save and to populate his eternal kingdom with many, many, many more people than had lived by the time of his first coming. For though this prophecy centers on Israel, what they could not even begin to fathom was that God's purpose was to save the Gentiles too. And that meant that the gospel of Jesus would go around the entire world to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, so that all peoples of the earth would have the opportunity to hear, to be saved, and to enter God's eternal kingdom before Christ's final return, and this church age ends. 2 Peter 3-9 verse tells us, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The promise being the fulfillment, peace on earth, and all of these things. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some have understood slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. A story you may have heard before illustrates this truth quite well. Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, a teenager named Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with her home, having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. And so one morning, she slipped away, breaking her father's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for his young, attractive daughter, the father hurriedly packed to go find her and bring her home. On his way to the bus stop, he entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures He didn't have pictures of her, he had pictures of himself. And he sat in that photograph booth, closed the curtain, spent all he could to take pictures of himself, and then with his pockets full of small black and white photos, he boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. He knew Christina had no way of earning money once she arrived there, and he also knew that his daughter was too stubborn to give up and to come home of her own free will. And he also knew that when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. And knowing that there were men who would prey on his young daughter's beauty, he began his search with intent and purpose and desperation. He went to all of the bars, hotels, nightclubs, and any seedy places he could think of, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. He went to them all. And at each place, as he asked after his daughter he left his picture. He would tape it on a bathroom mirror. He would tack it to a hotel bulletin board. He would fasten it to a corner phone booth. Everywhere he went, he pasted his picture. And it wasn't just his picture. On the back of each one of them was a note. And it wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out. He did not locate his daughter, and with a heavy heart, he had to go home. And the weary father wept as the bus began its long journey back to his small and remote village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. She had already done things that were unimaginable. And a thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet at home. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. And she looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her father. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across that room and snatched the small photo. There, written on the back, was this invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. And you see, while we may think that God is taking his time about getting around to finally implementing peace on earth, the reason he hasn't yet ended this church age is because in his merciful patience he is still searching, calling, pleading with more to be saved. Which includes his chosen people Israel, and thanks be to God, includes you and me. And for however long it takes, God desires to see all turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. He desires for all to come home no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter because in Christ it is all forgiven and we can go home to the Father. For it is only in him that we can have first peace in our hearts and have the assurance and the hope that one day soon we will experience the unending peace of his kingdom on earth. Even so, come lord jesus let's pray lord jesus we do long in our hearts for that day of your return when your kingdom will be ushered in in all of its majesty all of its glory all of its authority as you are upon the throne and we will worship at your feet so father even as we long for that day and we look for that day i pray lord that we would not miss the first step the most important that we would receive your gift of your son to have peace in our hearts spiritual peace that our sins are forgiven that the the middle wall of separation has been torn down and that we are at peace with you our father we are adopted as your children into your family and i pray lord that if there's anyone here today who has not made that decision that they would and lord for those who have i pray that this peace that surpasses all understanding this peace of Christ, that it would rule in our hearts, that you would reign in all of your glory in our hearts, just as you will reign in all of your glory on this earth when you make all things new. And so, Father, we thank you that this is possible through you and your Holy Spirit's work within us. Bless each one to this end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.